Um, my name is Jessica Eiplecht, and I have a couple of things to tell you about real quick. First, I have a question. How many of you really like putting up Christmas decorations, but you really don't like taking down Christmas decorations? Anybody, anybody really like the putting up, taking down though? Yeah, have I got the job for you? Um, so we are, we have for the last several years done something called Decorate Fairfax here for the Christmas season and we are doing it this year, but uh, in the past what we've done, if you've been around, you maybe remember we've had everyone come on like one night, we've had like a Christmas army who just like decorates the whole church in one night and it's done. Well, we did it a little bit differently last year, we're doing it differently this year where we have put all of the different projects that we need done for our Christmas decorations on the Vomo app. And you've heard us talk about Vomo before because that is what we use for for all of our Love Your Neighbor projects and all of our outreach projects that we do here around the church. And so we have put all of the Decorate Fairfax project, uh, yeah, the Decorate Fairfax projects up on the Vomo app as well. And so, um, so you can go on the Vomo app and you can sign up to decorate a tree, to work on a wreath, to work on, uh, to wrap presents, to do all sorts of things that we need to do to, um, and you can like choose what you wanna do. And, uh, and there's times that are listed there. So you just come at that specific time and do your specific task with a couple of other people that are here. And so, so that's how we're doing Decorate Fairfax this year. The other big project that's on kind of our Operation Christmas uh, big, big, big project here that we are working on is called our Holiday Boutique. And um, this is a really special project that our church is involved in every year. We essentially become a toy hub for social workers and teachers and caseworkers and social service professionals in Fairfax County to come and get the toys for the families they work with who can't provide Christmas toys this year. And so we need volunteers to work the boutique during the days that it is open for those social workers and teachers and such to come, and also for people to provide toys for that. And so if that's something that you maybe are interested in, then you can also find the Holiday Boutique and all of the surface opportunities related to that in the Vovo app. Now, maybe you're sitting there and you're like, Jess, you keep talking about this Vomo app thing. And I keep hearing about this Vomo app thing, but I don't actually understand the Vomo app. Or maybe you've like tried to get on the Vomo app and you got a little stuck because that happened to me this week when I was trying to make sure that I understood. So we have a little video tutorial to show you because we launched Vomo back during COVID. So like some of you weren't even part of our church back when we first put this together. So, um, so it is an app that you can use on your phone and, uh, or you can do it on your desktop. But if you download the app and you don't have an account, you've never done this before, then it's gonna take you to that home screen where you're gonna say, join an organization. And when you click on join an organization, then it asks you for the invitation code. And the invitation code is just Fairfax, right? Pretty easy to remember. You just type in Fairfax. Then it's gonna ask you to fill in all the, some information about yourself, set up an account, all of that. Um, so you can see that I did this on my phone and just to try to like, just to show you. So, um, so you set up a little account and then once the account is set up, then um, you, have to, you have to do some things. Hang on. I'm... Yep, there's the phone number. That is not my birthday. I am just a little bit older than this. That's the, when the building opened. We moved into the building in May of 2005, so that's what I put as my birthday for our little dummy account here. So, so then you get in, so here's the Vomo app, and then you have to go to your account. It's, it takes a minute to load. 
Be patient. By the way, that's the other thing I got a little freaked out by when I was trying to figure this out for myself this week. Was this like, it would take forever to like load. So just be patient. Give it a second to think, but it's coming. And so then eventually you get to my organizations, you click on Fairfax, and it'll take you straight. There's all of our stuff. So you want to get into the Fairfax Church Volunteer Hub, and that's where all of our stuff is, and you can uh, select a project to work on and sign up. And um, yeah, make sense? Is that helpful? Hopefully that's helpful. So um, you can do it. You don't have to do the app. You can go on the web, on the desktop, on your computer or whatever and do it that way. But we just thought maybe that would help you because we need um, we need a lot of people to sign up and help us get the church decorated. And, and this isn't just, by the way, not just the Christmas projects. Like every service opportunity that we have for Love Your Neighbor projects and um, helping out in the resource center and all of that, that's all on VOMO, okay? So, uh, so this is not true of just Christmas. This is like the way that we kind of mobilize as a church in a lot of ways. So, all right. Last week, we started a new series on the book of Ezekiel. And as Rod talked about last week, we had spent several weeks before that in the book of Exodus. And if you were here for kind of the last part of Exodus, then you know that we ended the book of Exodus with all of these instructions about the tabernacle and about uh, how it was the vehicle for experiencing the presence and the glory of God. And now we come to uh, Ezekiel. And hundreds of years have passed since we ended Exodus. And uh, the Israelites have left the wilderness. They have settled in the promised land, in the land that God had promised to them, west of the Jordan River. They built a temple because they didn't need a mobile tabernacle anymore. They had, they had a home. They had a land that they, were, uh, that they were living in. And so they didn't need a mobile tabernacle anymore. So they built this temple and they built up the city of Jerusalem. And they built these really strong walls around the city to, uh, for protection and, uh, and from their enemies. But... We see this throughout the Old Testament. Their cycle of disobedience just continues and continues and continues, and it just gets worse and worse and worse. And because of their ongoing disobedience, they are eventually overpowered by the Babylonian Empire, and many of the young men and women are taken into exile. And one of the individuals who's taken into exile is a young priest named Ezekiel. Now, the book of Ezekiel begins five years after all of that. Ezekiel is sitting on the bank of an irrigation canal in Babylon. He's near his refugee camp, and it's his 30th birthday. And that is a big deal because his 30th birthday is when he would have been installed as a temple priest back in Jerusalem had the whole world not fallen apart right before his eyes, right? And so he's on this very important day that was supposed to be one of the most important days of his life. Instead, uh, he's sitting by this irrigation canal in a foreign land as an exile, um, feeling, I can only imagine, heartbroken, extraordinarily confused, uh, and probably in a bit of an identity crisis. So Ezekiel, along with the rest of the Israelites who have been exiled, are now a people without a country, without a city, and most importantly, a people without a temple. And they are wondering how they will ever again experience the intimate presence of God again without those things. They don't have the Holy of Holies. They don't have the Ark of the Covenant. All of the, the structures, all of the things that, uh, that where they, their theology was built around these, these places and these, um, these things where they believed that God, that God lived, that God's presence was, that, that they, they communed with God, they had fellowship with God in these places. And all of those things have been taken away. Now, last week, Rod talked about how in the midst of this total upheaval, Ezekiel has this vision where he sees the Lord, he sees the, the, the um, what was this? He sees something that was like almost like the presence of the glory of the Lord, right? So it's like a, as close of, as a, out of an approximation as can happen of, of the glory of the Lord in Babylon. 
and uh, the glory of the Lord, which is supposed to reside back in Jerusalem, back at the temple, back in the Holy of Holies with the Ark of the Covenant. Instead, the glory of the Lord is in Babylon with the exiles. And Rod talked about how God is teaching Ezekiel that even though there is no temple in Babylon, that God is still present. That God's glory is not limited to one specific place, that it's everywhere. And even in what Ezekiel would have considered to be a God-forsaken place, like Babylon, God's glory is found there. So last week we talked about, how the, about the beginning of that vision in chapter 1, and today we're going to look more closely at the end of the vision, which isn't until chapter 11. So we're jumping a big portion of the text uh, between last week and this week. And if you have never read Ezekiel before, I want to invite you to maybe read those intervening chapters uh, this week. There is a lot in there. So Ezekiel uh, is, um, he, he is a prophet. We talked about that last week. He's, and he's like, he's one of the major prophets. And uh, he is trying to tell the people, trying to warn the people about additional coming disaster, but he does so using a bunch of different object lessons. He's like, he's like Israel's first youth pastor, right? He's like known for all the things he does in order to try to teach this lesson. If you don't know youth pastors, we're like known for object lessons. That's like, that's like our thing. So, um, so he, he does all of these things. For example, one of the things that he does is he shaves his head and then he collects all of the hair and he scatters it in the wind as a way of trying to show that that is the way that the exiles are going to be scattered to the different nations and they don't get their act together, right? So he does things like that. Um, some even considerably more extreme than that in an effort to try to warn the people, to teach the people about what's coming. If you've never read Ezekiel before, and this is, or even if you have, um, I want to invite you to also, if you're going to kind of follow along with us, um, to watch the Bible Project's work on Ezekiel. There's a video that, that they have put out that's kind of a, a graphic understanding. If you've ever watched the Bible Project stuff, it's, it's similar to what you're thinking of, that does a really good job of kind of walking you through what's going on so that you don't get lost. Because it's there's a lot. Rod said this last week, so it's okay for me to say it. It's weird, right? Like, there's a lot of weird stuff in Ezekiel. So, um, so you might find the Bible Project's depiction to be helpful, okay? So that's kind of what's happened in between, and now on to chapter 11. Okay, so we have talked pretty extensively over the last several years about the exile to Babylon. It's this, like, it's this identity-shaping event that happens in the life of the nation of Israel. And we've talked about it. We come back to it every once in a while because it's such an important part of, uh, of their history. And so we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on, on the exile itself today. But there are a few key points that bear repeating because I want to make sure that we all have kind of our bearings as we go forward. First, remember that not all of the Israelites are exiled. So uh, depending on the scholar that you talked to, there were two or three waves of exile from Babylon. And what would happen is that the, the Babylonians, so they come in, they conquer Jerusalem, and they take this first group, and they take all of like the best and the brightest, the most educated, uh, the most, just, just the upper crust of society. They do take all of the military leaders, all of the government leaders, all of the, the yeah, all of the people, all the people that you can imagine, kind of the best and the brightest of society. They take this is kind of the first round of all those folks. And then they tell them, all right, now behave, don't do anything dumb, like try to regain your independence, and the rest of you can stay. And they put in like a puppet king and all that, right? Except that the Israeli people are like, well, no, we're probably not going to do that. Like we're probably going to try to reassert our independence. And so Babylon comes back a couple of times to be like, well, now we're going to destroy more of your land and take more of you into exile. And so Ezekiel is one of the first of uh, one of the first ones to be exiled, along with people that you've probably heard of, like Daniel. And um, so. It happens in two or three waves, and uh, 
And so that's the first thing, is that not everybody is exiled. Now, one thing that we don't talk about much, though, because the Bible doesn't really talk a whole lot about it, is that the, there are people who are left behind, right? There are people who, who are never exiled from Jerusalem or from Judah. And, uh, and those folks are common referred, often referred to as the remnant or, uh, or maybe as Judahites. And they're the ones who, when, um, when everybody else has been exiled, they're the ones who are kind of left with a destroyed Jerusalem, with a destroyed Judah, to try to pick up the pieces and to try to, um, to, try to make a way forward back in the land. They're central, they're, Ezekiel's one of the few prophets who actually talks about the remnant at all, and they're fairly central to our discussion today, which is why I wanted to kind of make that point, that not everybody gets exiled. Uh, to Babylon. The second thing I want you to remember is that the Israelite people had a whole theology and religious infrastructure built on these two interlaced ideas of the land and the temple, right? So this is almost common sense if you know even the kind of the general story of this idea that like God has given them the promised land, right? The very word promised is in the land, that God has given them this land. And, uh, and so the land is so important to their story that it's once they're, they're in the wilderness, but then they're in the land. And, uh, and that this land has been promised to them from Abraham. And so the land is a really important theological part of their understanding about who they are. And so is the temple, so David is the one who first has the vision. King David is the one who first has the vision for building a temple. And his vision is that he wants to create a home for God that kind of represents the splendor and the majesty uh, of God. He wants to build a, a home that's worthy of God. And so um, he doesn't get to build it. Solomon ends up building it later on. But, but it's kind of David's idea, and it's built on this, like, I want to build a home for you that is, like, worthy of you, right? So, um, and it's the idea of it being a home is that, like, for David and for the, eventually the Israelite people, that God would live there, that that would be in the way that we use the word home, like, that that would be where God dwells. God's very presence, God very, God's very glory dwells in that temple, right? So the land is key because God gave them the land and they are tied to the land and the temple is key because that is God's home in the land, right? So do you see how these two ideas are so interlaced? So, um, so Ezekiel has been raised to be a temple priest. He's highly educated and uh, we can see that throughout his book. The way that the book of Ezekiel is written, it's very symmetrical. It builds, it's really got really clear, really smooth grammar, things like that, that just are evident that he's like a really highly educated person. And it's clear that he is very familiar with like the Leviticus texts and with other scriptural texts because he's kind of sprinkled turns of phrase and sayings that you would find uh, in some of the other scriptural texts of his day. He's kind of sprinkled those throughout his book uh, in Ezekiel. And so it's clear that he is really highly educated and he knows what he believes, right? He's been raised since he was very little to be a temple priest with a very clear, like, five years old, he knew, I don't know, I just pulled that five. My brother was five when he decided to be a vet. And like, with the exception of the period of time where he wanted to be a football player, he never, like, he wanted to be a vet, and he is a vet. Like, Ezekiel, I imagine Ezekiel being a little bit like my brother, where he's had like one focus on his life, and it's, he's going to be a temple priest, and he has, every decision he's made along the way has been to be a temple priest, and so um, that's what he was raised to be, that's his family, because he's a Levite, so all of the Levites were priests, so his, it would be like going into the family business kind of thing, a big part of his identity is in this being a priest. He knows what he believes, he knows what he's been taught to believe, and he is ready to live that out in the temple to do this thing he's been raised to do, and then everything blows up in his face. So no wonder 
he's caught a little off guard. Going back to last week, when the glory of the Lord appears in Babylon, because his entire theology is centered around the idea that God dwells in Jerusalem. That's where God's house is, right? So here in chapter 11, we're gonna see some additional pieces of his theological foundation kind of shifting. So the first 12 verses of chapter 11, they're a little bit of a vision within a vision, and uh, they speak about these 25 men who are still in Jerusalem. They're part of the remnant and about really how truly awful they are. Like they're guilty of all the crimes, like all the sins they've done. Namely, mass murder. God says that they have murdered. The corpses are building up in the streets because of how many people these 25 people have murdered. And then also of um, mindlessly conforming to the standards of the nation surrounding them and being careless with God's laws. So, God is telling Ezekiel about these 25 guys and about how they're all gonna be removed from the land and that they're all in really big trouble. And then as God's telling Ezekiel about these guys, one of them just falls down dead. And Ezekiel is like, whoa, 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 whoa. Is this your plan, God? Are you just gonna kill everybody? Like, is that the direction that we're going here? And God is like, well, hang on a second. And this is where we're gonna start reading in verse 15. Human one. When the, by the way, I don't think I ever want God to call me human one. I feel like that's like the God equivalent of like, I don't know. I don't know what it's the God equivalent of, but I don't think I ever want God to call me human one. Okay, Um, when the people living in Jerusalem said, they've gone far from the Lord and we've been given the land as an inheritance. They were talking about your family, your nearest relatives, the whole house of Israel, all of it. Okay, so here's what's happened. This is one of those examples of how there is truly nothing new under the sun. So the remnant is back in Jerusalem. And from their perspective, the land being central to their, ideology, their theology and that God has given them the land, the exiles are the ones who were taken from the land. And they're the ones who are still on the land. So as far as they can tell, the exiles are the ones who are sinful, the ones who disobeyed God, the ones who, uh, who God has turned God's back against. And, and the remnant, the ones who are still on the land, they're the ones who have been faithful to God. God is on their side. Uh, God is with them and against the exiles. And hopefully, I'm not stepping on Rod's toes with something he's gonna talk about later in this series, but we find out later that the, the exiles have formulated basically the same narrative about the remnant that they're pretty sure that because they've been exiled and had to go through the exile and had their world turned upside down and had to go through this, that God must be on their side and therefore must be against the remnant. And, uh, and it just is fascinating to me that like there's nothing new under the sun, right? Like we all do this where we assume that God's on our side and we other somebody else so that we can say that God's not on their side. And, and so that's what's happening here. When the reality is, and Ezekiel's pretty clear about this, they're all guilty. No one has gotten this right. The reason the whole nation is in this mess is because they all screwed up. So spending a bunch of time pointing fingers about who did it worse, they were all unfaithful to God. God says, the land doesn't really have anything to do with this. You were all unfaithful to me. That is the issue. And also, God doesn't choose sides, so just stop it with that. But listen to what God says next in verse 16. Therefore, say, the Lord God proclaims, even though I made them go far away among the nations and caused them to scatter throughout the earth, I've provided some sanctuary for them in the countries to which they've gone. Did you catch that? It's okay if you didn't. I didn't either. God says that God will provide some sanctuary for them in the countries to which they've gone. He's talking now about the exiles 
And the Hebrew word that is translated here as some sanctuary, uh, a, a more literal translation of that would be like a bare sanctuary. This same Hebrew word in other places in the text gets translated as, as synagogues. And, uh, but synagogues hadn't happened yet in Ezekiel, so that doesn't make sense for a translation here. But the idea is that uh, what God says is that even in exile, even the absence of a temple and the sacrifices and the festivals that accompany it, that God will personally provide a continuing closeness to Israel. Now, this is common stuff, common sense stuff, theologically for us, right? Let me tell you what I mean. I love this building, like our whole, our whole church, this whole building. I love it. I love this room. This particular room is really special to me. I got married in this room. I stood right about here and pledged my life to my husband. I dedicated both of my babies in this room. I have met with God both during church services and at other times when I have come into this room more times than I can count. This room is very special to me and I have witnessed God's work and activity in this room. I received my call to ministry in this building and a lot of my most precious memories about my now 13 and a half years of service to students have happened here in this building. And yet, I know, God doesn't just work in this room or in this building. And you know that too. We don't just experience the presence of God. We don't just experience the work and activity of God when we are here in this room or in this building. And if we weren't 100% sure of it before, we got real sure about it in March of 2020 when none of us were worshiping in this room or in this building. And we were forced to spend time on maybe your living room couch or maybe in your pajamas, still in bed or wherever, watching the service on a television screen. And so you hopefully experienced the presence of God uh, in that experience as well, there in your house. That no matter where we are and no matter what's going on, that we can experience the presence of God. That's pretty standard theological understanding for us, that God's work in the world, God's presence, is not contained or limited to a building. That was not standard theological understanding for Ezekiel. God is kind of blowing his mind right now. What's fascinating to me is how quickly we kind of move past it in the text, right? Like, we don't spend a whole lot of time unpacking this idea here in Ezekiel chapter 11. And one of the things that I read about was just this idea of the trauma that the exiles have experienced of being forced from their home, being conquered, first of all, being forced from their home, in many cases taken away from their families. Um, that certainly is the case with, with like Daniel. We know that he is taken with other, with other young men his age, but taken away from his parents and his, the rest of his family. And, uh, and so the trauma that they've experienced um, leads them to be looking for ways of making sense of that. And, uh, and so, yeah, so they're looking for, there's this, there's, after so much has been taken away from the exiles, they have to find new ways of understanding who God is and who they are in relation to God. And so this is one foundational shift that God is teaching them. God is saying, when everything else has been stripped away, I will personally be your place of worship. I will provide what you need most to worship. And by saying that the temple is no longer the only place that God will be, God is also teaching them that God will not be contained, that your theology will not restrict who I am or how I work, that I go where I want. 
Now, I want to say that uh, the temple will eventually become the central place of worship for the people again. They're going to rebuild the temple. We read about it in Ezra and Nehemiah. And the temple doesn't, the second temple doesn't get fully destroyed until the Romans come in and destroy it after Jesus' death and resurrection. So that's a long ways away. So the temple will continue to be really central for the people. Um, but once the second temple is destroyed by the Roman Empire, then they really do have to find some ways because, you know, we know, like, this is catch up to 2021, there is no temple on that site now. And so the, the, the Jewish people have had to find other ways of worshiping and, and other ways of fellowshipping with God. And so, um, so while the things that Ezekiel is being taught here in this text is not like, not necessarily like, that's not like the only shift. We see continuing shifts happening um, over the course of Jewish history. But this is just the first of many major adjustments to the faith that the Jewish people will make over the next few centuries as they learn more about who God is and as their circumstances change again and again. It causes them as a people to have to reevaluate their faith and consider what it means to be faithful to God now. Maybe you've experienced something similar. A mentor of mine says, if you've never had any doubts or questions or realignments in your faith, then you've probably only been a Christian for about five minutes. Because all of us, every single one of us go through these seasons. Maybe you're going through one right now. They can be really scary when you're in a season and you can feel your faith starting to shift, starting to maybe be challenged. You can feel questions kind of bubbling up inside of you. And most of us uh, start out by trying to shove those questions down and pretending that they don't exist and pretending that we're not secretly asking them. But eventually they just keep generally nagging at us. And uh, they can be scary for us when we're going through it. They can be scary for if you're the parent of a teenager because so many teenagers go through these seasons where they um, start to ask questions of their faith uh, in, in kind of mid-adolescence to late adolescence, we see, a, we see that for most all of us, which is, um, I'm not going to get into all of this, but is like neurologically normal and fine. Like it's a regular part of development for us to do some deconstruction, some kind of deconstruction in that mid-adolescent to late adolescent time period. But that doesn't mean it's not terrifying for parents who are watching their kids walk through it and are worried that they're not going to make it to their side. Or if you're like married to somebody who's going through this or just in a close relationship with somebody who's going through this, it can be scary to have it happen to you. It can be scary to watch it happen. And, uh, and so it is maybe helpful to you to know that Ezekiel went through this too. That the Israelite people dealt with seasons of refiguring out who they were and what their faith means. And I don't know about you, but this leads me to wonder in what ways I've been guilty of limiting God in my own theology. Like in what ways have I tried to restrict who God is or how God works in the world because it's outside of my own understanding. As though my understanding could encompass the entirety of God. I seem to try to often place God in a box, and then when something happens that's outside of that box, then I, uh, I maybe try to make excuses about it, or I don't know. Like, there's all sorts of things that we do. We try to say, oh, that's not God, or, or whatever. And how, so in what ways have I tried to limit God or God's activity? Like, it just makes me wonder and reflect on myself, and maybe it causes you to do that as well. One of the most important lessons that my own youth pastor ever taught me was this. If you meet someone who has God all the way figured out, like who has no more questions about God or God's work in the world, run as fast as you can the other direction. That is not a person to follow. And so God has rewritten some core theological understanding here with two points. The narrative of the remnant, this narrative that they have that God is on their side because they're the ones who are still in the land, 
and that, that God is saying that's not really accurate because it doesn't have anything to do with the land. It has to do with you not being faithful to me and your abhorrent crimes that you've committed. And then this long-standing institution of temple worship as the only way to fellowship with God, that God is all, that's also inaccurate because it limits the movement and activity of God throughout the world. God is saying, stop presuming that you have me figured out by challenging both of these ideas of the land and the temple. Having clarified that, God continues in verse 17. Therefore, say, the Lord God proclaims, I will gather you from the nations, assemble you from the countries where you were scattered, and I will give you Israel's fertile land. They will enter the land and they will remove from it all its disgusting and detestable things. I will give them a single heart and I will put a new spirit in them. I will remove the stony hearts from their bodies and give them hearts of flesh so that they may follow my regulations and carefully observe my case laws. They will be my people and I will be their God. As for those whose hearts continue to go after their disgusting and detestable things, I will hold them accountable for their ways. This is what the Lord God says. Therefore, God says, given all that I have said, I am going to gather you back from among the nations. I am going to reinstall you back into the land that I had promised. And we're going to experience the kind of close fellowship that we once had. But we have some work to do before that can happen. And God kind of lays out this vision to Ezekiel of what the future will be for the exiles. A vision that gives them hope that someday they will be back in their homeland and back in relationship, in right relationship with their God. And it kind of breaks down into three different parts. The first is this, remove everything that doesn't belong. God says, when you get back, you're gonna see it's a hot mess in there, right? Like Jerusalem is destroyed and you have to clean it up. You need to get rid of all the idols. There are idols that the, uh, that the remnant has kind of adopted from the surrounding nations. There are idols that the Babylonians have left there for them to worship as part of their like regime change. And then the, the exiles are certainly not innocent of adopting new idols and of worshiping of anyone other than God. And so the, the exiles will bring idols home with them when they return to Israel. And, uh, and God says, get rid of all of them. Get rid of all the idols. Worship the one true God, whether it's in a temple or in a bare sanctuary, whether it's in Babylon or Jerusalem, the rule is the same. Worship God alone. That's the rule. And it applies now and forever that we worship God alone. And then the second thing that is part of this is this, I will, I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. God says, just because I am with you, and just because I'm gonna return you to your home doesn't mean that you've like got your act together, okay? Like there's a reason that you're in this mess in the first place. And ultimately what needed to be removed was not just everything on the outside, was not just the idols and the pagan worship on the outside, but the heart on the inside. And only God can do that. The word there for heart, I'm sure you've figured this out, but it does not refer to usually the, the physical organ inside our bodies, right? The Hebrew word for heart here is referring to uh, the inner being. It's referring to the inner person, the mind, the understanding, the underlying attitudes of us as human beings. That's all kind of subsumed under this metaphorical term of heart. And then with regard to persons, the word uh, that signifies the heart is the seat of a person's inner being. It's their guiding motivation. It's their moral conscience. It's their will. And so God is going to remove the stony, unconscious, immobile, and unresponsive hearts that the exiles have 
and replace them with hearts, with attitudes, with minds, with an inner being that is tender and yielding and responsive to God. God is not just going to change the hearts that they have. God's gonna take these hearts out and get rid of them and give them new hearts. God will do the inside work. They will do the outside work. And then alongside parts one and parts two is this renewal of the Mosaic covenant from Exodus 6. I will be your God and you will be my people. God first made this commitment to Moses in chapter six of Exodus when, uh, when God is, is initially talking about the, the promised land and that God, he says, God will, I will be your God and you will be my people. It's a covenant. It was a, it was a no strings attached, no preconditions, period. I will be your God and you will be my people. And the people broke their part of the covenant over and over and over and over again, but God never did. God stood ready to welcome them back into the covenant time and time again. But then Jerusalem fell. And then they were exiled. They were taken away from their homes. And from the perspective of the exiles, God had finally abandoned them. They were no longer God's people. But God says here, no, I've not abandoned you. I know it felt like it. And we have a lot of work to do. But the covenant between you and me, the covenant stands. I will be your God and you will be my people. Even when you walk away, even when you try to limit or restrict who I am or how I am at work, even when you demonize others or try to get me to pick a side in your culture wars, even when you are confronted by challenges to your faith, you are my people when you believe all of it and you are my people when you believe none of it. You are my people on your best days and you are my people on your worst days. The covenant is not dependent on the first two pieces being fulfilled, okay? The covenant is not subsequent to parts one and parts two. You don't have to clean up the outside and have God clean up the inside and then God will be your God and you will be God's people. No, parts one and parts two are concurrent with part three. They're all happening at the same time. Just because you need a new heart and just because you need to cast out idols in your life doesn't mean that God is not still your God and you are not still God's people. The two pieces, the three pieces are all concurrent with one another. The covenant just is. They don't have to return to the land and God doesn't have to transform hearts in order for it to be true. It just is. You will be my people and I will be your God. So listen, if you're sitting here today or you're watching online or you're listening to this message later this week or month or years from now, I don't know, and you feel like an exile, you feel like the faith that you grew up with or the faith that you were so sure about once upon a time, that's being challenged in some way. Maybe you learn something new and it's causing what feels like the very foundations beneath you to shift a little bit. Lean in. Lean into the new thing that God is teaching you. Maybe God is about to blow your mind with something the way that Ezekiel's was blown. I tell my students all the time that God is not afraid of or offended by your hardest questions. In fact, God gave you that big brain, so use it. God is honored when you use it. But please, above all, please, don't give up. Don't find yourself confronted by challenges to your faith or by doubts or by questions about your faith and say, it's too much, I can't. Or the questions don't make sense yet and I've been in this season for too long, so I'm just gonna walk away. 
It'll just be easier to walk away. Or none of it, I don't think any of it's true after all. And so I'm just done with the whole thing. Don't do that. Don't walk away. Keep one step at a time, one piece at a time. Keep leaning in to God's promise, to God's covenant, that God is your God and you are God's people. And keep following that path to where it ends. Trust that. Lean in to that covenant reminder. Or maybe you're here today and you know that you have some false gods in your life. You know that you have adopted the idols of neighboring nations and today you need to take the first step in tearing them down and casting them out and cleaning up the outside. Maybe you need to ask God to give you a new heart that take out your heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh that your unresponsive attitude needs to go and you need one that is yielding to God. The covenant is still true for you too. It doesn't become true after you've gotten your life together. God declares over you today, you who know that you have some work to do on the outside, you who know that you need God to do work on the inside, God declares over you today, I will be your God and you will be my people. And I think if we're honest, that's all of us. We all fail to live up to the command to worship the one true God and God alone. We all allow our hearts to be stubborn and unyielding which is why thousands of years after Ezekiel, God did more than declare a covenantal promise over each of us. That covenantal promise became human in the form of Jesus to say, I have already done the work on the cross to forgive you. I have already done the work on the cross to bring you back into fellowship with the Lord. All you have to do is say yes to that work, is say yes to the covenant, is to say yes to Jesus, the one who never fails us, who never gives up on us, who never walks away from us the one in whom our future and our hope are secure. So I wanna close our service today um, a little bit differently by inviting you to maybe hear these words of God spoken over you to allow them to penetrate your heart. So I wanna ask you to to maybe close your eyes. I wanna ask you to, if, uh, if it... If it helps you, if it, if it helps your heart to be in the right place, to maybe consider kneeling right there at your seat. Or maybe if, uh, if it more reflects the way that you think about God, if it, if it would be easier for you to hear from God, maybe just stand. If that helps you to honor who God is, to just stand right there with everybody's eyes are closed, to just, to just get, put your body in the position that your body needs to be in to hear from God. And then I want to invite you to just wherever you are and and whatever posture you're in to just turn your hands up towards, just up towards the ceiling, which just traditionally, historically, is just a way of us signaling that we are open, that we want to hear and receive what God has to give us today. So with your eyes closed and, and with your hands up, just hear these words. Wherever you are, whatever you're facing, whether you are full of faith today or struggling with faith, whether you are standing firm in the Lord or hanging on by a thread, God says to you today, you are my people and I am your God. In the stillness of this moment, when it's, it's just you and God, hear God say, you are my people and I am your God. When you feel like everyone else has let you down, 
when it feels like every other promise in your life has been broken, when you are no longer as sure of your own abilities as maybe you once were, hear God reaffirm this covenant that will never fail. You are my people and I am your God. When you're at the end of your rope, when you don't know what tomorrow will bring, when you feel like a failure, hear God say, you are my people and I am your God. You are my people and I am your God. You are my people and I am your God. Yesterday, today, forever, come what may, you are my people. And I am your God. You are my people. And I am your God.